0: Well, good morning again. It's good to see everyone today. I love that song. That's a song that prepares the heart to look into the Word of God. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 9. Our text for this morning is verses 13 through 34. And uh, this is a continuation of the story that we began last week as we looked at verses 1 through 12. And so uh, the uh, author here, the Apostle John is going to put some more meat on the bones for us to understand just exactly what has transpired as it relates to this situation where Jesus has miraculously healed this blind man. So we look forward to looking into the text this morning. But I have a question as we begin today. Have you ever had something inexplicable happen in your life? Something that you really can't explain, but it happened. I've mentioned this before, but a few years ago, and this came to my mind this past week, I, as I was driving up Route 39 from Hershey uh, to Harrisburg, and I got up to the inter, uh, intersection at Route 22 a couple of years ago, something very interesting happened to me. As you know, it's a four way stoplight there, so I, at the time, back a couple years ago, I was stopped there waiting for the light to turn green. It turned green, I looked both ways, and then I slowly turned out to the left, and there was a car that had to be going 100 miles an hour or more that blew through the red light and was right on me. In my mind, at the time, to- there was nothing I could do to avoid a catastrophic crash. And so, because all this was happening in a split second at the moment, I realized that a crash was inevitable because this car literally was right on me. I instinctively dove into the middle of my car. I covered my head to absorb the crash. My hands were off the steering wheel. My knees were up to my chest. And I was just waiting for the impact. But it never happened. Somehow, I was spared. When I realized that the crash didn't happen, I straightened up, grabbed the wheel, got control of the car, pulled the car over to the side of the road to collect myself and to try and make sense of what just had happened. In my mind, it was like the other speeding car went right through my car, or like the other car was somehow lifted up over the top of my car. I have no idea what happened that day other than what seemed unavoidable and imminent never came to pass. I can't explain it. I can't make sense of it, but that's what I experienced that day. As I've tried to reconcile that whole experience, I've thought that perhaps a a guardian angel could have been involved to rescue me, or maybe God himself intervened in that situation, but my life was spared And folks can say what they want. Oh, you must have it wrong. There's got to be a logical explanation for what happened. And maybe there is, but I don't know what it is. And so I'm giving all of the glory to God. I tell you that story because it's inexplicable. I still don't know for sure what happened that day other than my life was spared. But while I can't explain it, I've also been very careful not to build some sort of foolproof doctrine from that experience. I call that kind of thing story theology. You maybe have heard me mention that terminology before. So yes, all of that happened. But when those kinds of things happen, we need to be careful not to try and develop our theology from our experiences, but it's the other way around. We filter our experience through the infallible, all-sufficient, inspired, Word of God. And so one day in glory, I hope to get the answer as to what happened that day in that intersection. Could it have been a miracle of God? I don't know. It seems so, but I don't know. Well, there's no need to wonder or to speculate as we pick up where we left off in our study of John chapter 9, with witnesses abounding. Jesus miraculously healed a man that had been blind from birth. This man had never seen a thing until Jesus opened his eyes. And we began to consider this amazing account last week as we looked at verses 1 through 12. And so just to bring you back up to speed, it was sometime after Jesus had left the temple area that he encounters a man who was blind from birth. And so Jesus had compassion on him. He takes the time to stop and to put into motion the healing of this man. And remember that Jesus spits down in the earth. He makes a little mud pie, puts it on the eyes of the blind man, and then he tells him to go to the pool of Siloam and to wash off the mud. And when he does, he has sight for the very first time in his life. This amazing miracle prompts all kinds of questions from Jesus' disciples and the formerly blind man's neighbors. It's an amazing story. But because of the nature of this miracle, the religious elite gets wind of what happened. People are talking. A man who used to be blind can now see. And so you can imagine that word travels pretty quick when something like that happens. And so, these religious leaders, these Pharisees, insert themselves into the situation. And so, as Paul Harvey might say, let's pick up the rest of the story here in verse 13, and I'll read all the way down to verse 34. John chapter 9, beginning with verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now, it was the Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. And so they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called his parents, the very one who had received his sight, and questioned him saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? And his parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but now he sees and we do not know who opened his eyes. We do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. And his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, uh, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him, meaning Jesus, to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And for this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. And so a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. He then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. And so they said to him, what did he do to you? how did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? And they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are the disciples of Moses. And we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. And the man answered and said to them, well, here's an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears them. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and you are teaching us? And so they put him out. in the aftermath of this blind man being healed, there are four resulting instances in our text to consider. And so this is the approach that we're going to take as we move down through the text. Four resulting instances for us to consider today. And the first is that he is rushed before the Pharisees. Verse 13, again, they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath, on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And then the Pharisees who were asking him again, how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. And therefore some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who's a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Well, the Pharisees, as you well know, were considered by the people to be the religious gold standard. I mean, just ask them, they'll tell you. It was the Pharisees who were thought of as the staunch keepers of the law. And so with all the questions surrounding this apparent miracle that this former blind beggar can now see, he's rushed in for a meeting with the Pharisees, the religious elite of the day. And part of the equation here is the fact that this miracle took place on the Sabbath. And so in Judaism, the Sabbath is the seventh day of the week, which commemorates the Lord's day of rest that he modeled in the creation of the world. And of course, keeping the Sabbath was one of the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or your, or the sojourner who, who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in it, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so the Sabbath began at sundown on Friday and lasted until sundown on Saturday, and I have mentioned this before, but this is very apparent the sacredness of the Sabbath, which they hold to those particular days, sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. And so, when I was in Israel, it was very interesting that you can't even take an elevator up to your room because it involves work. And so, I don't know if it's the placing of the bags in the elevator or what it is. But I guess pressing the button would equate with their idea of work, and so there's what they, ha- they call a Shabbat elevator that you can walk in, the doors are always open, you can walk in, and it'll go up to every floor and stop and let you out, and you don't have to touch a button. But that elevator can only be used during the time of the Sabbath, from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. Very interesting, very peculiar. But rather than just keeping the spirit of the law, the Jews had constructed very specific rules as to what a person could and couldn't do on the Sabbath, all apart from Scripture. So let me explain a little bit of this to you this morning as we begin, so we know what's going on here. And so as you know, God gave His law to the people of Israel, through Moses up on Mount Sinai. And so God gave Moses some 613 laws that he was to write down as the governing laws for the nation of Israel. These laws are all contained in the first five books of the Bible, which the nation of Israel, the Jews, refer to as the Torah. It's often referred to as the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible written by Moses. Moses but if you know anything at all about Judaism, you know that there's also what they consider as the oral law of Moses. And so most people in Judaism believe that not only did God give Moses the written law, but he also told Moses all the specifics as to how each law is to be perfectly obeyed. You follow me? And so these oral laws then have been passed down through the centuries and would eventually be recorded in what's called the Mishnah, the Mishnah. Now, just so we can keep our timeframes in order, the Mishnah wasn't developed until sometime around 200 AD, which would have been a couple of centuries after this encounter that's recorded for us here in John chapter 9. In the Mishnah, it categorizes the 613 commandments found in the Torah into six primary categories, agriculture, sacred times, women and personal status, damages, holy things, and purity laws. Now, the Mishnah is now part of what's called the Talmud, which basically serves as a commentary on the Mishnah, the so-called oral law of God. But just foundationally, none of this is recorded in Scripture. And so at the time of this miracle, what they called the oral law Wasn't yet written down anywhere, so it was very elusive, it was very subjective. Essentially, the oral law was whatever the scribes and the Pharisees said it was. Now, just to state the obvious, this so called oral law in the Mishnah that would be compiled a couple of centuries later is not inspired by God, or it would have been included in the canon of scripture. It's an extra biblical document based on tradition that's been changed many, many times over the years. But the Pharisees placed it on par with Scripture, much in the same way that the Catholic Church places tradition on par with Scripture. So if you're tracking with all this, you can see the convenience of such a document, the control that those who set these outside rules around the original commandment of God, you can see the control that they would have for people to keep certain rules. Not because these rules are in Scripture, but because they are tradition. Okay? Now let me just give you a made-up example of this. I was trying to think of an example that I could give to you so that we could kind of understand how this works. So let's just say that there was a written law uh, that everyone is to attend church on a Sunday, okay? So that's the law, you have to attend church on a Sunday. Well, that's the law, but the so-called oral law or this oral tradition would expand upon that by adding rules, like you have to attend church on Sunday unless You are in a hospital, on your deathbed, on oxygen. If you're not, then you are required to be in church on Sunday. And when you go to attend a church on Sunday, you must enter into the the area through a certain door, and you must give a holy kiss on the cheek to Don Miller, when you come in and you must file in a certain way, you must go down the left-hand side of the auditorium, down to the middle section, take a right if you're going to sit on this side, stay on that side if you're going to sit on this side. And all of these details, all these rules, all these extra things that would go along with this original law that you're to attend church on Sunday. And so you see how it works. And so this has been developed over time, changed over time. To suit who? I don't know. Maybe the scribes, maybe the Pharisees, maybe for them to have control over what the people do. But this is the situation that is at hand. And so as we look at this today, we need to realize and recognize that Jesus did not violate any law. Jesus is the author of the law. As God, Jesus is the author of this law that was given to Moses. And we'll see here in a moment that they want to accuse Jesus of violating this law. And so it isn't anything to do with whether or not this guy was blind and now can see. That's sort of pushed back into the background now. Now all of the focus is on Jesus. All of the focus, all of the attention is on him. And so they begin to even... Question whether he is a sinner. Okay, stick your finger in John chapter 9 and turn with me over to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, beginning with verse 6. Of course, Jesus always held the written scriptures in the highest regard, right? But he regularly condemned the reliance on oral tradition which was the practice of the Pharisees. Listen to this. Mark chapter 7, verses 6 through 9. And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Is, is there anything wrong in and of itself with tradition? No. No, we have various traditions here at the church. Every year we do certain things. We have a, 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 an outside festival, an outside hayride out at the Ziegler Farm. It's a tradition that we do. You don't have to come, but it's just something we do. It's just, just a tradition. So a tradition in and of itself isn't wrong, but when you place a tradition on par with Scripture and you say, okay, the, that original law was that you must attend church on a Sunday... But you also got to go to the Zigglers for their event, and you got to do this, and you got to do that, and you got to do this, and you got to do that. And so this is sort of the equation of what we're looking at here. They're they're, they're taking this law about the Sabbath that God had given to Moses very clearly. I read that to you in Exodus chapter 20, and they're adding extra laws that they say are tradition. These have been passed down since the time of Moses. God actually whispered to Moses when they had the encounter on Mount Sinai, and God said, here are the 16 laws, but here's how you carry out every one of those laws. Some of them suited the purposes of the scribes and the Pharisees, and some didn't, and so they changed those traditions or those oral laws to meet their own standards. And so you can imagine that over time, all of these things have been added to the original law that had been given to to Moses from God. So that's at the heart of this today. That's at the heart of this. Jesus, as God, is the author of the law. He is the one who came to perfectly fulfill the law. And so he wrote the law, he followed the law to a T, and the Pharisees are about to try and convict Jesus for violating their rules, their traditions, about what men can and can't do on the Sabbath. And so just to close the loop on this, my purpose today is not to do a deep dive on the Sabbath itself, which by the way, keeping the Sabbath is the only one of the Ten Commandments that's not repeated in the New Testament. It's to remind us that Jesus performed this miracle of healing the blind man on the Sabbath. And so the blind man's now standing in front of the Pharisees. Imagine the pressure. I mean, this guy's just getting used to seeing things. He's been in the dark his whole life, and now all of a sudden he's starting to see things, and they've rushed him in before the Pharisees, the religious elite of the day, that he knows. And he's standing before these men, all in this regalia, all in this garb. You can imagine how intimidating this kind of a thing would be for this man. And they stand him in front of the Pharisees. And they begin to ask him again, what happened? What happened? How did you receive sight? And so he tells them again what happened. And rather than celebrate with this man that he can now see, many of the Pharisees immediately began to make accusations against Jesus because in their mind, he had violated their oral law. And then to put a cherry on top of this, some of them called Jesus a sinner. A sinner, someone who has violated the holy character of God and violated the holy law of God, and Jesus is God, how can he violate his character? You see how messed up it is. You see how crazy this is. In other words, by not keeping the Sabbath in the way that they think the Sabbath should be kept, many of them reason that he's a sinner and therefore could not be from God But then there are others who say, how could a sinner perform a miracle like this? This brings us to the second instance, which is he is relegated to being questioned. He is relegated to being questioned. Look at verse 17. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. And the Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of this very one who had received his sight and questioned them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he see? And his parents answered them and said, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, he is of age." He will speak for himself. And his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus as the Christ, he's to be put out of the synagogue. And so for this reason, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. And so their questions to this formerly blind man get more pointed and specific, don't they? They ask him what he thinks of Jesus. And so he gives them an honest answer that they don't want to hear. He says he's a prophet, which meant in his mind, Jesus must have been sent by God. He must be of God. Otherwise, how in the world could any of this have happened? But most of the Jews can't believe it. They would not accept that this man was blind and miraculously healed by Jesus, because if he is, then Jesus is of God. And so they called the blind man's parents in. And so you can imagine (laughs) the tension in the room. Here their son is, who's been blind ever since they've known him, since birth. He can see all of the scribes and the Pharisees are surrounding them. They come into the mix. And these religious elite want verification that this is indeed their son and that he was blind from birth. And so the parents affirm that it is true. He's our son. He was born blind. He's been blind his whole life, but now he can see. But when questioned further, the parents say to the Pharisees that they too don't know how this happened. But nevertheless, Everything their son has said is true. And so obviously the parents are nervous. They're they're not interested in continuing with all this questioning. And so they tell the Pharisees that if they have more questions, they should just ask their son directly because he is of age. He's a grown man. Just ask him. (laughs) Leave us out of this. Yes, we verified he's our son. Yes, we verified that he can now see. He was born blind. Now he can see. We're out. he's a grown man, ask him. And so the parents knew of the power of the Pharisees, and they were afraid to get too involved with all this, and so they just affirm, yep, he was blind, yep, he can now see. But as to all of this other stuff about how it happened, they just push it back onto their son. Why? Well, Says in the text, because they knew that anyone who affirmed that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the one sent by God to come and to save people from their sins, anyone who affirms that would be thrown out of the synagogue. And they certainly didn't want that. And so they tell the Pharisees that their son is of age, just ask him, just leave us out of it. And so at this point, the Pharisees say to the formerly blind man, something amazing. Give glory, listen to this, give glory to God and affirm that Jesus is a sinner. How twisted is that? These religious people say, give glory to God and agree with us that Jesus is a sinner. Why did Jesus come to the earth? To reveal God to men, right? To come and to die in the place of sinners. All those who would repent of their sin, place their faith and trust in Him, He promises to give them eternal life. He came to reveal God to men. That's why He is God incarnate, God in the flesh. That's how the whole uh, gospel begins. Right? God in the flesh. That's what the whole gospel of John is about. That Jesus is God. And so they want this man who doesn't know much, honestly, all he knows is that he had an encounter with Jesus. He's sitting on the side of the road begging for food, begging for any sort of money or anything that he could get. He's on the side of the road. Jesus walks by, and he approaches him, and he recognizes and knows, because he's God, that this man is blind. He has compassion on him. He gives him sight. And now, all of the fallout from all of that is taking place. Who can do that? Who can give sight to a blind man? As they said, we've never heard of anyone ever doing this before. Who can do that? If he really did this, if he did give this man sight, then we agree he must be from God. But that's off the table. That's totally off the table. That's not in their thinking. They can't believe that because that throws off their entire paradigm. And we'll talk about in a moment why they can't see that. We look at it as God's people, and we say, this is absolutely ludicrous. This is absolutely crazy. It's obvious. They're witnesses to what happened. This man is an eyewitness to this. His parents come in and say he's been been blind from birth. And he says, now I can see. And they said, well, it's obvious. He can see. He can maneuver. He can get around. He can now see. All of those who were with Jesus are eyewitnesses to what happened. And yet they won't receive it. They won't accept it. It doesn't fit their religious paradigm. You ever study world religions? I had a class in Bible college uh, on world religions. It's amazing. It is amazing what people will believe. They will worship ants, bugs. I just killed a bug before the service back there. Some religions, it's like killing a little god. It's amazing what people will believe, but something that we look at that is so crystal clear, something that there are witnesses to, something that is miraculous in nature, they will not accept it. They will not accept that this man, Jesus, whom they have opposed since his public ministry, they will not accept that there is any possibility that he is of God, let alone God himself. But this man... He doesn't take the bait. Which brings us then to the third instance here, and it's he is reliable in his testimony. He is reliable in his testimony. Look at verse 25. He then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? Now that's a hint there, by the way. You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? Something is happening in the heart of this man. Verse 28, they reviled him and said, you are his disciples, but we are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. And the man answered and said to them, well, here's an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from. And yet he's the one who opened my eyes. That's what happened. He says, It's been verified by everyone who was there and was around the situation. My parents have come in. They've given testimony that I've been blind my whole life. I'm standing before you right now as a formerly blind man that can see. You have a blue coat on. You have a red coat on. You have a purple coat on. You have a black coat on. I can see just like you, but for the first time in my entire life. So this is so good, isn't it? This man who was formerly blind, he doesn't take debate from the Pharisees and enter into this theological debate over whether Jesus is a sinner or not. He just boldly reiterates that Jesus is the one who healed him from his lifelong blindness. He's not wavering from that. With all of the possible ramifications of saying that, he doesn't care. He's bold in his testimony. This is what happened. I'm not recanting. And so the Pharisees continue to badger him on the details. They ask, what did he do to you? How did he do it? How did he open your eyes? And the man said, I've already told you this. I've already told you what happened, but you didn't listen. Do you really want me to tell you the whole thing again? And then to me, the mic drop. He says, why? Do you want to become his disciples too? You can imagine that this irked the Pharisees. It riled them up. And so they chastised the man. They said, you may be a disciple of this man, Jesus, but we are a disciple of Moses. As if that's the ultimate trump card they go on to say, we know that God spoke to Moses, but we don't even know where this man Jesus is really from. I hope you're catching all this. This is the fruit of their spiritual blindness. So then the formerly blind man basically says, what does it really matter where he's from? He just opened my eyes that I might see for the very first time. In other words, let's just keep the main thing, the main thing. All these ancillary things, all these secondary things, these minor things. Let's just keep the main thing the main thing. I was blind. He healed me from my blindness. Who cares where he's from? But the Pharisees couldn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. And this is a great reminder that people love to obfuscate. They love to skirt around the real issue and deflect. And this is a trait of an unbeliever. As Christians, we should be sensitive to any sin or wrongdoing that we've committed, right? I mean, isn't that the mark of a true believer in Christ that we confess our sins to God? So, confession means to say the same thing about our sin that God would say about our sin. Now, I will say, first John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 is in the context of believers. And we know from 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13 that John says that these things were written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So this the whole the whole epistle of 1 John is written to believers. And so this is in the context, 1 John 1, 8 and 9 is in the context of believers. It's in the context of fellowship. We're going through this uh, epistle in our grace group. And so when it is said that if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, what that means is that we can affect and sometimes even break the fellowship that we have with God, the intimate communion that we have with God when we sin and do not see our sin the way that God sees our sin and we confess it and desire to repent of it. We're still saved? That's eternal. We still have a relationship with God, but we can affect the relationship in a way that sours the relationship in a sense. We can turn our backs on God relationally, fellowship-wise. Husband and wife, raise your hand if you have a perfect marriage. Anybody? Oh, I saw a hand over here. Then the wife just smacked him. (laughs) Raise your hand if you never argued with your spouse. Raise your hand if you would set your marriage up as the standard, the gold standard, the model. Hey, come and look at how we do it. It's absolutely perfect. None of us would do that, right? So what happens if the husband treats his wife in a way that she should not be treated? And there's some things said. That are really bad in the marriage. I mean, there are some nasty things that are said. Is there a strong communion there at that time between the husband and the wife? No. How does that communion get restored? Because let's face it, we've all had our moments, right? Men and women, husbands and wives in a marriage. How does it get resolved? We go to our spouse and we say, please forgive me, I'm an idiot. I said something I shouldn't have said. I did something that I shouldn't have done. Would you please forgive me? Ephesians 4.32 comes into play, that we are to forgive in the same way that Christ has forgiven us. And so if somebody comes to us confessing their sin, we are to forgive them of their sin sin against us. Translate it back to our relationship with God, the communion that we have with God, with Christ. We, he never does this to us, but we could do this to him where we are sideways with Christ. We're sideways with God because we've done something or said something that we shouldn't have done. So how do we make it right with God? We confess our sin Which means that we say the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin, and then the relationship with God is restored back to that intimacy, that communion that used to be there. So I think all of that is in play as it relates to our sensitivity to sin. Unbelievers are not sensitive to their sin. They sin. It's a matter of course. That's what they do. They're sinners. They sin. We're sinners too. But when we sin as God's people, we recognize that we have offended a holy God and we desire to confess it. So these people are showing the fruit of their unbelief because they do not care about anything other than their own rules. So as Christians, we should be sensitive to any sin or wrongdoing that we've committed. The book of wisdom, Proverbs 28, verse 13, one who conceals his wrongdoings will not prosper, but one who confesses and abandons them will find compassion. And so unlike his parents, this man does not shy away from just telling it like it is, which then leads us to the fourth instance. And it's that he is removed from the synagogue. He's removed from the synagogue. Look at verse 31. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born entirely in sins and you are teaching us? And so they put them out. When in doubt, kick them out. Rather than dealing with their own insolent attitudes, they remove this formerly blind man from the synagogue, but not before he sets them straight. Remember, these are the religious leaders of the day. They're, the relig- they're in the religious capital of Israel. They're the religious elite. This man is at the bottom of the food chain. He is a former beggar, but he takes him to school. It's beautiful. He essentially says that this man, Jesus, has to be of God. There's no other way around it. Otherwise, there's no way that he could have healed me from my blindness. Now, we're not done with the story. We're going to finish up chapter 9 next week, but what we have here are two parallel tracks you're seeing as we go through. One involves physical blindness right? And the other involves spiritual blindness. As it relates to physical blindness, I don't know what that's like to be physically blind. Do you? I mean, I don't know that we have anyone in our church that that doesn't have at least partial sight. I was doing some substitute teaching in the Springfield Public School Systems in Illinois way back in the 80s, I guess, the, the latter part of the 1980s. And so I wouldn't know from day to day what assignment I was going to get. I would be in a, uh, you know, a high school science class, or I would be in a high school history class, or a middle school you know, language arts. I, I didn't know. From day to day, I had no idea what my assignment would be. One day, I get a call from the district, and they said, would you be willing to take a class of blind children for a week? I'm thinking, what am I going to do? How do you teach? I mean, like, there there are people that go to school to learn how to teach children that can't see. And they're going to put me into a situation for a week as to how I would do that. I have no idea. (laughs) Well, I mean, we got to eat and we got to put bread on the table. And so this was really early on in our marriage, we didn't have anything. Kathy was working. I was just taking things as they came. I was selling life insurance as well. I would gotten through all the people I knew, and so it gets a lot harder after that. And so I just said, well, okay, uh, yes, I'll do it. I'm thinking, oh, what have I just agreed to? So I get there into this classroom, and these are the most precious kids. I mean, I was just like, I love these kids from the get-go. And so I had stayed up for hours researching how to teach blind kids. What can I do with them for a week? All day long for a week. How is it that I can actually have an impact in their life? And so I researched things. I uh, had ideas that came to my mind, and I had I had a, like the funnest week with these kids. It was so fun. I I was looking forward to every day getting there and just being with these precious little kids. Elementary age, I think kindergarten, first grade, little kids, blind. So there's there's a parallel track going on here. It's that physical side of it, the, the, the blindness part of it, the physical blindness part of this. But there's also a parallel track with spiritual blindness, And I was reminded of 1 Corinthians 2.14 that says, but a natural man, again, thinking about the Pharisees and why they don't get it. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. An unbeliever does not have the ability to, to grasp the things of God. Just in the same way as someone who has physical blindness cannot see things, someone who is spiritually blind also cannot see things in a spiritual way. These Pharisees are religious but lost. And in the same way the physically blind man had to be miraculously given sight, it's the same way with those who are spiritually blind. Their eyes must be opened to the truth of the gospel by the Holy Spirit of God. And how does that happen? God performs a miracle. He removes the scales from our eyes. We see our sin for what it is, and we see him for who he is. And the Pharisees can't believe that any of this could be true because it didn't fit their In their box. It didn't fit their paradigm. It cannot be true, they reasoned. Folks, let me remind us today, God is a miraculous God. He's still performing miracles each and every day. He's just not using Benny Hinn to do it. But God is a miraculous God, isn't he? I mean, think about what he did in your life. You were spiritually blind. You couldn't see Christ if you wanted to for who he was. And then God did a work. He opened our eyes to who Jesus Christ is and our need for a Savior and our own sin. And God did an amazing thing. He took spiritually blind people and made us alive. We can see It's amazing. He removed the scales from our eyes. And if you know Christ as your Savior and Lord, you are a walking miracle. That should change how we live. That should change how we think. That should change our priorities. That should change what we do day in and day out. We are a walking miracle. We have been changed by the power of the Spirit of God. We were spiritually blind. We're spiritually now have sight. We can see these things. And guess what? We live in a world where we are constantly with spiritually blind people, right? They need to have the scales from their eyes removed. Jesus had compassion on the blind man. We are to have compassion on the spiritually blind. And so we should be telling people about Christ. It's their only hope. So let me encourage you this week, figure out, figure out how you can impact other people's lives with the gospel. It's not that hard. I mean, it is in a sense, because we have to show ourselves for who we are. We have to be vulnerable. We have to tell people, no, we're a believer in Christ. This is the way to eternal life. But I'm telling you, the more you do that, the more comfortable you will be with that. So reckon it in your heart today, all of us, all of us that are here today, we're going to talk to at least one person, maybe more, but at least one person this week about the glories of Christ. Helping through the power of the Spirit of God, through the power of the gospel message, to deliver that to spiritually blind people. If God would so use us to give His gospel message and He would appropriate that to the hearts and the minds and open the eyes of people, it's an amazing thing. So there's your challenge. And it's a challenge to me as well. So I'll ask us how we did next week. If you're not here, no, I'm just kidding. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you again for this story. Thank you for the uh, eternal truth that is uh, encompassed within it. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for his example. Thank you for the testimony of this uh blind formerly blind man too and we'll learn more about him next week uh but what an amazing story thank you for it and lord i pray that you would touch the lives of people uh with your gospel through your spirit this week and lord use us as a church to be your ambassadors help us lord to have the boldness of speech to talk to people about christ we thank you and we praise you and it's in the name of jesus we pray amen